0: Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 50. So today's episode is a very special episode because it is a listener q and I try to do these every... You know, 10 episodes, ask for questions, get to hear from you guys. I just I love this because it's so it's so energizing and it's so invigorating to hear what you're interested in. So these questions came from the patrons of the podcast. So if you want to know how to get your question answered, um, either privately, because I do answer messages on there um, on our discord live chats or here on the podcast then joining patreon is the best way to make that happen and you also get to connect with other members that are listeners of the podcast which are really really cool people as you're going to hear from the quality of the questions that that we're getting i want to remind everybody that i still have ooh, two tickets left for the fermentation workshop in january which is very exciting that j- workshop is january 16th through the 20th and you come and learn about fermentation with me, meet other coffee professionals. Um, All of the links are in the show notes for more details and how to buy tickets. Okay, so one thing I want to mention before we get started is that I got all of these questions from you guys and I was so excited that, I mean, first of all, I got a lot of questions and a lot of the questions were like five-part questions. Um, So that was really exciting to see your excitement about wanting to hear more about fermentation and hear more about these topics. The stumbling block that I kept coming up against is that I kept making my answers really, really long. And almost almost entire episodes uh, were kind of coming to me from just a couple of questions. And there were so many questions that I wanted to answer. So Nick kind of took the questions away from me. He didn't let me look at them for too long. And so now we're going to do this in a much more casual uh, way to be able to and get through most of the questions. But the ones that really stood out to me are going to have to be episodes in and of themselves. So if you don't hear your question answered, it could be because it's, you know, it needs its own episode, and it will get one at some point. Or um, there was just too many, and we're going to have to do a part two. So let's get started. Okay, the first question is from Brandon. He says, my question may be a silly one, so please feel free to skip it for the podcast. What do you hypothesize would happen if coffee was refermented post-processing slash drying? I have been curious to try rehydrating green coffee, fermenting and or applying aspergillus oryzae or rhizopus oligosporus, and then re-drying. Since I would be roasting directly afterward, I could also experiment with final moisture percentage do you hypothesize that this could create interesting results or just a complicated way to destroy otherwise good coffee? Um, I This question is also one of the ones that could require its own episode later on, but I did want to address it because I do get this a lot about uh, re-fermenting or, or fermenting after the coffee is dried. And this is something that is already happening. There is a company called Affiner that is basically based upon this premise that they take a sort of commercial grade or uh, pretty much mediocre coffee, they referment it and then they sell it as a super specialty premium product. So the question of does this work is yes, it does work. And I think that it makes sense that it's something that a lot of people would want to experiment on. For me, it's not something that I've looked into. It's not something that I would do. It's not something that I'm interested in. So what I heard this company was doing was they were buying incredibly cheap, low-quality coffee and then basically flipping it and turning it into a high-value product. And that is very interesting, except that that money wasn't going to any of the producers because what it allowed, but by them being able to transform this coffee after the fact, it allowed them to pay even worse prices and buy even crappier coffee. And so for me, like philosophically, that just didn't align with what I'm trying to do, right? We're trying to get producers to... C- keep more of the value and we're trying to get producers to have much more control over you know influencing the flavors of their product and so this like super innovative super tech really interesting scientifically forward innovative process is at the expense of producers because again it goes backwards and allows the purchase of cheaper and worse quality coffee and saying again the producer's not really uh, important in this process, we, a scientists, us in the consuming world, are able to transform. And again, kind of putting the producer on the back burner. So I don't like the, the philosopher in me really doesn't like this type of uh, method. But the scientist in me finds it really fascinating because you can continue to evolve flavor and you can continue to um, expand on you know what this coffee could be you can really push the limits of quality and flavor but again it's after the fact so for me it's like the, the the benefits don't outweigh the the drawbacks so i'm not interested in this process i really don't like to necessarily talk about it but yes Brandon, um if if you know what you're doing it's an incredible tool to leverage turning you know this coffee into something better and I think there still is a place for it because not everybody has access to making incredibly, I don't know, because of climate conditions, because of financial restraints. So this kind of helps that idea of like every coffee has a home. It could help producers that otherwise couldn't get into, couldn't sell their coffee to be able to have a market. But again, I'm not seeing the the benefits really trickle down to them as much as, okay, they just get to sell their coffee very cheaply. Um, but so that's in the right hands. In the wrong hands, it, it is a complicated way to destroy otherwise very good coffee. So I guess that's what I would say, Brandon. Don't, if you're going to do this at home because you're a curious individual, then. The best way that this method works is not starting with really good coffee and then trying to make it like 2% better. It's buying very low quality, very cheap coffee. And then, you know, the risk is also very low because it's not, you haven't invested very much in it. And there's much more room to grow and improve this coffee. All right. The next question comes from Paolo. He said, I tasted a coffee with a very particular process, honey osmotic dehydration. An 80 brick solution is made with honey and the cherries are submerged. The cherries balance the humidity by osmosis and thus dry out. Question, what does honey change compared to sugar and possibly salt? So this is one of those things that you would expect me to be a little bit uh, or initially sort of be uh, critical of, right? Honey osmotic dehydration. That's a very, it's a very new process. Uh, in terms of coffee that I've heard of, I haven't seen a bag and I haven't tried this coffee. However, I find this very a very interesting concept. So exactly like he's saying, a very high brick solution, so really high concentration of sugar, and is and so the cherries are submerged. And as we've talked about on this podcast many times, um, if the water is coming out of the coffee, then it's really difficult for the sugar to be going into the coffee because sugar is attracted to the water. So when you're putting these, you're submerging these cherries in the super super high sugar concentration, then the water is drawn out of it to bring these two mediums into equilibrium. So does this work as drying out, as as a drying method? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that this method is used in terms of food preservation in places where there's not a lot of refrigeration. So in India, um, I read this paper that was talking about how in a lot of rural parts of India, there's so much fruit, so much produce that just goes to waste because they don't have a good you know, refrigeration or preservation method. And so osmotic dehydration, putting it in a sugar or a salt solution is a great way to preserve fruit to be able to have, be consumed later. And not just that it preserves the fruit to be consumed later, but it also this method of drawing the water out. Uh, tends to retain a lot of nutrients in the fruit, so it's a really fascinating, really interesting, very low tech method to be able to preserve the fruit. So, does this work for drying out the coffee and making, you know, reducing the the water content? Yes, absolutely. Um, then his other question is, okay, well, what's the difference between honey and sugar, and then also comparing to salt? So, honey is a much more interesting medium than sugar in this sense because honey is also antimicrobial, right? We've we've heard a lot about the antimicrobial properties of honey and the way to think about this, some of the ways that honey is uh, antimicrobial is that it has this property that it has so much sugar that it creates all of this osmotic pressure and it draws water out. And we know that bacteria need a high water content to be able to perform their metabolic functions. So if you remove the water, if you dry them out, you are uh, essentially not letting them you know, continue to do their, their function. You're, they're, they're dying. They're desiccating. In for yeast that are much more resistant, that can go to much lower uh, moisture contents, as we've also talked about in this podcast, the really high sugar, that pressure is incredibly toxic. So you'd think that, OK, you're adding honey, which has all of this sugar. So you should be encouraging fermentation even more. But because the conditions are so extreme, then the, the yeast and the bacteria cannot could perform their metabolic functions. They can't continue to grow. So it's... It's antimicrobial in that sense. Um, In another way, honey, even though it's very, very sweet, it has a very low pH, which is surprising. So honey is characteristically acidic, so it has a pH between 3.2 and 4.5, which is low enough to inhibit several bacterial pathogens. And 3.2, to give you some reference, so like lemon juice is pH 2, 2 2.6, and grapefruits are 3 to like 3.75. So honey can be about as acidic as grapefruit or pineapples. Pineapples are around 3.2 to pH 4. So even though it has all of the sugar, it's surprisingly acidic. So honey, much more than just having a really high sugar concentration, is much more beneficial in terms of drying out that water, so drying out the fruit, and preventing any, any additional microbial or um, you know, yeast or bacteria activity to, to change the fruit. So, then how does this compare to salt? Does salt have a similar function? So, yes, um, when we're talking about food preservation, usually, you know, syrups and honey and high sugar concentrations are used for fruits because they are already sweet. And then a lot of times, salt is used to preserve vegetables. So, if you did a really high salt solution to dehydrate, to draw water out of your coffee cherries, how would that work compared to the honey? Okay. And this, if you're using salt, this is something that I'm not completely sure about. So if you know much more about this, you know, write in and let me know. But my understanding of salt is if you're using a really high salt concentration, the salt influences the uptake of water absorption in the product. And so you couldn't get as low as you can with a honey or a really concentrated syrup. So I think salt's if that's what you have on hand, it's also possible to use, but you may not get as low moisture content. And the other thing I'm really curious about is if you can actually get all the way to stability. So if you are starting with a water content of like 65% in like fresh coffee cherries, if we can get down to the 11, 10, 10 and a half, 11% range, that is what we want before we for storage and for Um, stability. I don't think you can get all the way there to that low percentage with these osmotic pressure uh, methods. So I think you would still have to use a dryer at some point. And so I'm just thinking about the logistics of having all of this coffee like partially dried with all of this uh, sticky honey or or syrup solution and then sticking that into a dryer or putting that out in the sun. So I think it's a really interesting method. I think it could be I think more people might want to look into this if you don't have access to dryers. Um, so the question is, does this make a better honey? Does this make a better, more tasting, a better tasting coffee? I don't know because I haven't tried it. But my guess is that it wouldn't do much. It sounds really cool. It is a really cool food preservation method. But again, what we're really just doing is drawing the water out without any microbial activity or reducing or limiting, inhibiting the microbial activity. And that microbial activity is what we want to give us those flavors. So it sounds like we would be making the process more complex. or So we're kind of putting the coffee cherry in like a vacuum uh, refrigerated system, meaning that we're just kind of pausing time. I think that's a better way to think about it. We're putting it like in a, a time machine where you're pausing time and you're definitely preserving the nutrient content and you're preserving the product so it has a be, you know, better shelf life, but you're not necessarily encouraging fermentation, which is the development of these complex flavors where you can add value and really add character to the coffee. So it's something to keep in mind. Sometimes these processes that sound, that are, you know, very complicated and extra steps and are very interesting sounding are actually the ones that are the most kind of neutral in terms of flavor development oh and the one last thing I'll mention is when I was looking at this process at for just regular fruit how they do in you know rural places where they don't have refrigeration they did mention that in osmotic dehydrated products the water activity is found higher so again this is just for fruit but it could be something that could translate into coffee if we are worried about our water activity or we're already in a place where you know that has been, a problem where there's so much water content and the water is so available that it makes the shelf life and this the long-term stability of our coffee you know, kind of in question. So cool! Thanks for that question, Paolo. This next question comes from previous podcast guest, friend of the podcast, Einstein. He says, "I'm curious to know what you think the future of fermentation will look like in the next ten years." I see so many coffee producers lost and not respecting the reality slash dynamics of fermentation, and this slows down general progress. What should we as professionals, be it consultants or farmers, focus our attention to gain ground and make all of this a more professional and less risk financially for all of the parties involved? So it's a very astute observation that We're not respecting the reality and the dynamics of fermentation. I think that this is a really, a really great way to put it because this is a very powerful tool and we're kind of just playing with it. So I think that my hope is that in the next five to 10 years, a lot more of us in the specialty industry wake up or just in coffee in general, you know, this has a lot of applications for commercial coffee as well. But I hope a lot more of us wake up to the power of fermentation. Even though fermentation is incredibly popular and very trendy, and yes, a lot of people are talking about it, I still feel like most people don't understand what a powerful tool they have. You know, we're just barely scratching the surface of what we can do. And so I'm hoping that this isn't a very popular trend that we kind of move on from. I hope that this is you know, a basic principle that is here to stay for a very long time and then just really wake up to how much more effective. I guess what I want to say is that right now we're using fermentation as like this cool little party trick of like, you know, look what I can do, look what flavors I can make. But we're not really unleashing the power of being able to provide stability or to be able to provide, um, you know, much more shelf life to these coffees i think the freedom that a good fermentation that a good processing practice could give producers like access to different markets or just the freedom to focus on other things i often talk about i like the fermentation to be like a set it and forget it like do this thing well and then focus on the other parts you know spend more time on the farm maybe opening new markets building relationships like i don't think the fermentation should or it needs as much focus as we're giving it to be this marketing tool, to be the thing that sells coffee. I don't think the thing that should sell coffee should be the process or the fermentation. I think the thing that should sell your coffee is your story or your relationship, you know, your connections to to the market. So where should we be as professionals, be it consultants or farmers? I think something that would help all parties involved is partially in the question, which is if we're not respecting the dynamics of fermentation, then that is a really great place to start. Respecting the fermentation for being this very powerful tool and then also respecting where producers are along this journey. I think that the general attitude for fermentation has been a lot of excitement and a lot of energy and just kind of like rushing forward without, again, respecting the foundations, respecting the basics and of respecting where this is placed in the broader scheme where you know a lot of my my criticism and a lot of my discomfort with my place in fermentation is that it's it can be a lot of a, it can be a distraction to many of us in terms of we can get distracted and excited and lost by talking about these different flavors and different you know processes that we can do to make coffee be interesting and it takes the focus away from the way that coffee is you know bought and sold in a lot of these countries is still very extractive in nature and you know we have all of these colonial processes in place so it lets us not really talk about the bigger issues which is how coffee how we as an industry are you know moving coffee from one place to another and how it's being bought and how it's being sold and how the people are you know being represented in the chain and then we can focus on oh wow look at us fermentation is really cool and um we can talk about innovations and sort of talk about the producer having more power and more influence but not really and then again we go to affineur and companies like that that are saying well we'll go more in the science direction and in the flavor and in the development and leave the producer further and further behind so i'm not really sure that's progress and so for me, progress would be and where I would like us all to see is just having a lot more respect for the role of fermentation. And then also for how, you know, having these conversations of do we want to keep buying and selling coffee in the ways that we have been the last 200 years? OK, now we have a question from Glenn. Well, he says, warning, non-coffee related question." As you're a minimalist microbiologist, I'd love to know your opinion on slash approach to taking probiotic supplements, if in your opinion, they're worthwhile or just wellness hype. Are there other approaches to gut health that you think are more beneficial? I I really like this question. And yes, I am (laughs) a minimalist microbiologist. Um... I often use the analogy of probiotics to show why producers shouldn't be afraid of the types of commercial yeast that I work with. So, probiotics actually comes up a lot in my work in terms of um, analogies because it's something that uh, more people tend to be familiar with. So, often the fear is that using a new yeast will completely colonize and displace the native microbes, and it will take over and it'll be a disaster. And I use the analogy of probiotics because many people have taken them. And as you know, If you've taken them, you can't just take a pill once and that's it. You can't take, you know, inoculate yourself one time with one pill and then say you're cured forever. So to actually see changes in your gut health, you need to take them, you know, daily or regularly for a a long period of time, maybe for years. So you need to keep inoculating your gut with a new population. Because you're putting new microbes in a hostile environment of our unhealthy guts. And that means we have to keep adding a new dosage every time because they can't survive there. So my philosophy in both coffee processing and my personal health is it's easier to change the environment and to make the environment more hospitable and more inviting for the types of microbes that I want instead of constantly taking this pill. So that's always been my ideal approach is, you know, change the environment, like build it and they will come. And I recently had this experience, so this is going off into a personal story, um, but I recently had this experience with a dentist. And if you follow my Instagram, you might have seen that uh, trip earlier this year to Guatemala, which was, I I went to Guatemala in January and I decided to take that opportunity to go and have a, a routine cleaning at a dentist. And that routine cleaning led to a surprise root canal. And I was, so I spent a lot of time, multiple trips, I spent a lot of time talking to the dentist about um, foods and sort of kind of like our own personal agency. And the dentist said that it was sort of about like sugar and rotting teeth. And it was not really about the diet. It had to do with the bacteria in my mouth and you know making it more acidic. And the acid is what leads to Uh, degeneration. So it was sort of this idea that like our our genetics predispose us to certain bacteria. And uh, the impression that I got is that she was saying that changing my diet wouldn't improve teeth health. And I could sort of see where she was coming from if she's, you know, sort of saying that it's not the sugar in food, it's the acid that the bacteria produce. But I'm like, okay, but what is that bacteria eating? It's eating the sugar in the food that we're eating. So it really left this this weird sensation. Like it was a, a weird interaction because I was trying to, you know, take control over my health and take some, you know, have some influence and say, you know, what I put in my body should influence how the microbes react and sort of then the general expression of, of their activities, of their metabolism. And she had this very defeatist point of view of like, no, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the bacteria in your mouth. And I, I still, again, not a dentist, <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't study any of that, but for me, it really felt like a very disempowering place to, to come from, to just say, well, what you got is what you got, and now it's just about managing it versus taking an active role and saying, well, what if I change the environment and invite different bacteria or create a, a more hospitable home for different bacteria that could um, you know, change my health? So back to the analogy. If... I didn't think that probiotics worked. Uh, I couldn't really do the work that I do with commercial yeast and coffee. I do think that probiotics can change the gut, but for a short time, if you keep everything else the same, right? Because we've proven that they can't survive in that environment, and then you have to keep taking more and more daily. So in one way, if I agree that probiotics work, um, as a human who cares about my health, I would like to take a probiotic supplement every day. But as a minimalist, for my personal daily routine, I like to keep it simple, and therefore I don't. So I personally don't take any probiotics, not because I don't think they don't work, but that's just kind of not the rhythm of my life. But this also helps the analogy in in a different way and why I think it's important to have commercial yeast available for producers as a tool. Because another thing that is similar between coffee producers and the yeast that I use for fermentation and then probiotics and human health is that we don't always have the best native local microbes. Um, You guys have heard the studies that our microbial inoculation comes from our mother, from the, the vaginal canal during birth. And that babies born through a C-section who don't pass through the vaginal canal don't get inoculated and they tend to have a higher incidence of allergies and health problems because their immune system doesn't have that like initial introduction from our mothers. Yes, you build up your immune system over time, but you don't get that like, you know, nice big hit. So this also goes back to the terroir episode we did here on the podcast, the series, because coffee is a pioneer crop. It's been taken to many new locations, and I'm not sure that it's always brought its best, most appropriate microbes with it. So coffee is kind of like a C-section baby that is microbially vulnerable. So in that case, for me, in coffee, inoculation makes sense. The same way taking probiotics makes sense if you've been immunocompromised or maybe you, there was a point where you took a lot of antibiotics. Um and it also makes sense that people who are you know blessed with vaginal births and good diets and good genetics probiotics are unnecessary and a waste of money so to summarize this this long rambling um i definitely think that probiotics can work and like anything there just really depends on the the quality and the sourcing of these products but if you have good testing and good sourcing i definitely think that they can work but again, if, if they're already not found in your body and you have to be taking them, you know, externally, then they may not be suited for your environment. And if you don't change your environment, if you don't change your diet, if you don't do different things to welcome those, those microbes and to, you know, make them want to stay around longer, then you're going to have to keep taking this external thing over and over again. So the question is sort of framed as, you know, is this, is this tool worth it? Yes or no? And I think the better question is where does this tool fit and for whom does this tool fit? And it's not, you know, a good tool isn't a good tool for everybody because we're going to use it in different ways. So I think that's kind of one way to connect, you know, probiotics and coffee processing. Okay, our next question comes from Laura. She says, hi, Lucia. I would like to understand a bit better the science behind coffees processed with the addition of fruits versus coffees processed with inoculated microorganisms. As far as I understand, both require totally different levels of expertise, infrastructure, investment, and so on. I guess outcomes are also completely different. From your experience, can you differentiate each process in the cup? Do both options go through a fermentation process and can be called fermented coffees? Uh, How fermentation is different in both cases? Can outcomes be as equally controlled in both scenarios? In terms of consumer price, is it fair enough to transmit that fermented coffees through inoculated microorganisms are way more expensive and demanding than the addition of fruits and juices? She said, sorry, these are very basic questions, but I would love to hear a parallel between both, even how to name them correctly. Super looking forward to hearing your next episode. Thank you. So Laura's question is really five questions. So again, this could be its whole episode, but I did want to give like some, um, some base because I do get this, you know, fruits versus inoculated, uh, microorganisms questions pretty frequently. So I know a lot of you are confused. Okay. So let's tackle one question at a time. Can you differentiate each process in the cup? Um, I think yes. I think with enough experience, it could be differentiated in the cup. For example, with my yeast trials, people often ask me if you can taste the yeast um, or if I can find my samples in a blind tasting. So, those are kind of two separate questions with different answers. Because while I don't think you can taste the yeast, there are certain combinations of characteristics that help me identify the samples. So, it's not necessarily that the yeast has a flavor. Uh, that helps me find it in a cupping table, like a a blind sample. I will be cupping a coffee with a type of acidity and juiciness combined with this body and sweetness that helps me identify it as you know, one of the samples that I'm used to working with. So it's, it's not necessarily any individual component, but much more about the balance and how all of those components interact and about the complexity and the layers that makes me think, ah, that's the yeast one. It's not because it has a yeast flavor, but it's just because it has this essence of like all of these different things that I'm, I'm used to the the yeast bringing out in in a coffee fermentation. However, it's not true that you don't always taste the yeast. For example, we can think about a product like champagne. In champagne, you can taste the yeast. The yeast itself provides a flavor to the beverage. The, a feature of champagne is this yeast flavor, the flavors that can come from these extended contact with yeast. So the way that wine, or specifically champagne, fermentations are different than coffee is that champagne generally has two fermentations one is done in a tank to get like your base wine uh, like you would make a kind of traditional white wine in a tank and then based on the style of the champagne house they do a second fermentation in the bottle so they take the base wine they bottle it into these very thick glass bottles because there's going to be a fermentation so there's going to be much more pressure and carbon dioxide released. And so you need a very thick glass to prevent these bottles from exploding. So they take this base wine and they add a dosage. They add some yeast and they add some more sugar to encourage a fermentation inside of the bottle. So champagne has a lot of regulations about, you know, it has to come from this area and have to do certain things to be able to be called champagne, including aging it for minimum a year and a half. The minimum is a year and a half because they established that it takes that long for this yeast flavor to really develop. And this yeast flavor is very characteristic of the champagnes and and of that region. And so they're putting this minimum to say, to get this yeast flavor, you need to age it at least a year and a half, if not longer. Because what's happening is you've added yeast and sugar to To the bottle, and it's fermenting in there. And you'd think, okay, well, you're only adding a little bit; you're not adding more, and the fermentation should be over once the yeast has consumed all of the sugar. And that's typically true, except that the yeast will consume the sugar, and then it becomes, you know, kind of a they die. And as they die, they kind of they release their contents back out into the fermentation, and then there's new sugar. So there's this like constant like uh, life cycle of more yeast are growing. And then they're dying and then they're releasing their contents and then more yeast are growing and dying and releasing their contents. And so you have this cycle that can go on for a year and a half. It can go on for a very long time. And that contact that of the wine with the yeast kind of bursting and releasing their contents... Back into the wine, that gives it a very complex flavor. And therefore, you do get the flavor of the yeast. But again, it takes a very, very long time to get that flavor developed in the beverage. And a reminder in coffee, we're not drinking that beverage, we're drinking the seed that has been roasted much later in the process. So, again, a lot of these parallels are difficult to make. But just know that to get the yeast flavor to really stick out in champagne, it takes a year and a half. So I don't think that you can taste yeast in the coffee if it's done well. I think if you can taste the yeast, it may be that something has gone wrong or it's just not kind of the intended um, intended consequence of doing a fermentation. So you shouldn't be able to taste the yeast, but I can still identify my sample sometimes because I, I know how the yeast behaves and I can kind of identify it and I know other people who are really used to tasting these samples, it, it kind of has a, like I said, it kind of has an essence. It kind of has a vibe and it's not a yeast flavor, but you can identify these yeast samples. Okay, our second question. Do both go through a fermentation process or can be called fermented coffees? Yes, absolutely. They are both fermented coffees, meaning that they have Their mucilage broken down by microbes. And when you're adding fruit to the process, you're not just adding fruit and sugar, but you're adding all of the microbes that come with that fruit. You know, each fruit, each vegetable, just like us and our skin, have their own microbiome that you're including into the fermentation. And so While that can provide a very complex coffee, it's not my preferred method, and I don't recommend it to the clients that I work with because it's so unpredictable and so difficult to control. So maybe you get this unicorn interesting coffee, and then somebody likes it, and then they say, I want 10 bags of that, or I want half a container of that, and you can't reproduce that again. So you've made the process so complicated and so uncontrollable that it's difficult to reproduce. But that doesn't mean it didn't make a really good coffee. And so my focus is all about, you know, scalability and and reproducibility. So I try to keep the process as simple as possible. But you can get a really good coffee with this method. And again, it's also very, in some ways, it can be very inexpensive because these fruits are abundantly available in a lot of these countries. But in another way, I think it makes the process more expensive because this, this constant adding And taking away, uh, like if you're adding fruit, if you're physically adding another fruit, a mango or a pineapple or a strawberry or whatever, it takes a lot of labor to then separate those things out again. And so in coffee, the the work is really manual. So you can increase your labor cost by, I don't know, five times um, by having to constantly manipulate the coffee and separate these things. Um, But yes, they're both fermented. They both undergo a fermentation one, you're just adding fruit and one you're adding sort of the, the, the microbes without the addition of the fruit, without the addition of more sugar. Uh, her third part is how fermentation is different in both cases. Okay, so I sort of covered that already with when you're adding the fruit, you're adding more sugar and you're adding all of the, you know, minerals and nutrients that go along with that fruit. So you're adding much more complexity and much more variability to the process than when you're adding just the pure microbes. Um, And then when you're adding the microbes in an inoculation, you're adding kind of a clone, a very specific strain that is going to dominate the fermentation and give you that consistent result versus when you're adding the fruit, you're adding out of 10 million different um, yeast and bacteria and whatever is found there. And then nothing is really, it's going to be difficult for anything to dominate. So they're all just going to be like jockeying and having these different positions at different times, depending on the temperature or the pH. So you have a very unpredictable, difficult to reproduce fermentation. This also answers the next question, which is, can outcomes be as equally controlled in both scenarios? No, absolutely not. You cannot control the first one that well. And that's part of the charm of that first one is that you're adding so much complexity um, that controlling that process is kind of counterproductive. Like if you want to control a process, don't add fruit. If you want to control a process, do a uh, a commercial inoculation because that is the easiest way to to control it if control is your goal. If it's not, then fruit is a great option. In terms of consumer price, is it fair enough to transmit that fermented coffees through inoculated microorganisms are way more expensive and demanding than the addition of fruits and juices? Okay, so I kind of already talked about this, but just to be a little bit more clear, I don't really think that you could say one would be cheaper than the other because that the price pressure would come at different points. With the Inoculated coffees, the price pressure is very obvious, and it's the cost of the yeast, the cost of you know having of buying this um, additive that you're going to put into your fermentation, and that's a very known cost. Um, but then your process is exactly the same. You don't have any additional labor costs, and then you could even uh, reduce your cost by using less water or having a kind of more efficient process. With the fruits, you don't have that initial upfront cost of buying a thing you know your fruit can be very inexpensive it would be you know a fractional a fraction of what a commercial yeast would cost so the price pressure in a fruit added coffee would come from the the labor involved in procuring that fruit um chopping it up however you're going to be adding it to your tank And then removing it, again, separating it out from just the pure coffee so that you can dry that and kind of send that on its way. So it could require a lot more people that you need or a lot more hours to get this work done, a lot more manipulation. Um, It could require more water to wash things off. And now you have the additional labor and the additional cost of getting rid of more waste. Coffee produces a ton of waste. And now if you're adding more fruit waste to that, you could be giving yourself a lot more work. Okay, Philip wants to know, I'd like to know what you have heard from producers about their impressions of specialty coffee consumers in non-producing countries. Do they see us like most non-specialty peers with disbelief, etc., or happy we are around? I really like this question from Philip because it shows how much he's reflecting about his own role in the coffee value chain. And it also shows what a thoughtful, you know, coffee enthusiast, coffee consumer he is because he's thinking about How do producers see him as somebody who loves coffee and is willing to pay potentially exorbitant prices for this beverage? I think talking to some producers, they are sometimes in disbelief that a coffee could be so expensive, but most of the time they're super pumped that, that you exist. They work really hard to make this product that they also love and appreciate and, you know, supports their families. And so whenever they get to connect with somebody who is drinking that product who is the you know the final consumer of this thing that takes all year to make it's really exciting for them and that's something that I really appreciate about our discord conversations where the office hours that I do every couple of weeks a couple times a month we get on discord and I just invite all of you who are listeners of the podcast to come and chat with me and chat with each other and you get to have these connections of producers talking to coffee consumers. And you can just see how valuable it is for producers to meet the people that love the thing that they make and for consumers to meet the people who make the thing that they love and to just say thank you. So I really encourage you, if you haven't yet, to join you know, one of our Discord chats because it's just like, a, not only do we talk about super nerdy stuff, but it can also be like this really fun love fest where you get to show appreciation in both directions. So if you are a consumer of coffee and you think that you are so removed from the value chain and you just feel so disconnected, then I highly recommend trying to get in touch with a producer and telling them how much you love coffee, how it Um, improves your day because it's just a a really nice thing to share and a really nice thing to hear. And if you find it really difficult, if, if you are drinking your coffee and you're like, I have no idea how I would even get in touch with the person that made this coffee, then that could be a good signal to say maybe you should be drinking different coffee because that's not an impossible task. You can You know, buy coffee from roasters that have these direct relationships, that have a connection to the coffee that they're buying, and they could give you that information. They can say, oh, here's their Instagram. Shoot them a message. Uh, Maybe you can send them their email or send them a voice note. And here's their website. You know, it is possible to get in touch when you have a different buying style. So take a look at that. If if you're drinking your coffee and you want to say thank you to the person who helped put this on your table... Can you do that? Do you even know where to start? I think that would be a fun exercise for all of us. Okay, next question comes from Richard. He says, I think I've heard you say washed coffee is less risk at the cost of flavor. Natural, better flavors, higher risk. Fermentation is best of both worlds with potential to add flavors, but there is no one size fits all and fermentation can be used as a tool to help with a number of problems. Really, we need to help the producers have access to the education so that they can select the best tools for their situation and let them innovate without arbitrary restrictions. Stop consumers roaster stop consumers roasters requesting weird endless post-processing combinations. Get the consumer paying more attention to the producer rather than the process, correct? (laughs) So yes, Richard, most of that (laughs) is correct. There's actually a second part to his question, but I, I wanna get to the first part um where I do wanna make a tweak. He says, I think I've heard you say washed coffee is less risk at the cost of flavor and natural is better flavor with higher risk. I don't think natural is better flavor. I think natural is different flavor. I think, you know, there's not a superiority. I favor washed coffees. I work with washed coffees because I think they are less risky and I think that is very valuable in a very um, risk-averse industry. But naturals are a very important option in parts of the world that don't have a lot of water. And I think that's going to become more and more relevant um, in the coming years as resources are becoming more scarce. So natural definitely has a place in our coffee future. Um, I just I don't happen to specialize or work with naturals because I work with washed and I work predominantly in a part of the world that has so much water we don't know what to do with it and it's insane if you watch if you watch my stories you see how much water we get here in Colombia. so i just wanted to make that clarification and i agree with the rest of the points and now let's get to the second part of his question he says here's my question i guess i'm having trouble with marketing for example icarus coffee in new zealand offers washed or natural I'm going to choose natural because I believe natural will have more fruit flavors. But how would they market fermented, given it's not one thing? They might have many fermentation offers, different times, different yeasts, different processes. I almost feel a lack of clarity is preventing the producers from using it and the purchasers from seeking it. Is it all just insoluble, so to speak? What is the way forward? So I think this is an interesting question because... Well, it goes back to the idea of like, how do we talk about these things? It's one thing to do them. It's one thing to kind of understand and apply these principles. But then how do we talk about it? How do we transmit what we're actually doing? And what he's saying is, and and I agree with the sentiment that there's confusion on both ends. There's confusion from producers to say, how do I talk about this? How do I name this? That's one of the very common questions I get. And one of the things that we talk about in FTC when I have producers there, they're saying like, well what would you call this? And they describe something or what should I call this? Um, And there's also a lack of clarity from consumers to say, I'm not sure what I'm buying. I don't know what this word means. How is this going to affect the flavor? So I completely agree that there's confusion on both ends on how to use these terms and what they mean. But I think it's interesting that sort of saying that this this opacity, this lack of clarity is a barrier to being able to talk about it more, where it's been my experience that it's kind of the opposite. It's kind of like, you know, too many people are using the language because they don't know what it means. It's not a barrier. It's sort of a feature. It's all of this opacity provides cover for people who don't really understand what they're doing, but they still want to benefit from the trends. So it's hard to know who is speaking from a place of... Information and you know has a, a foundation, and who's just kind of copying pasting what they've seen work somewhere else. So I do think that the words can be a barrier, but kind of for <laughs> for the opposite reason. Um, so what is the way forward? Well, I think that if you know that you want a fruity coffee, if you know that that's the profile that you like, and in the past naturals have worked for you. Um, Then a fermentation process, I don't think that it's up to consumers to learn all of the different kind of outcomes of these fermentation processes. I think it's really the role of the roaster to provide solid tasting notes and to say, you know, whatever they're able to taste in their coffee, transmit that to the consumer. Right, and not expect the consumer to know what a honey osmotic dehydration process tastes like compared to an anaerobic or a carbonic maceration. Um, I don't know that consumers really need to be caring about those processes. It's just it's, it's a method to get to a certain, you know, strawberry, uh, <laughs> strawberries and cream and caramel profile. So. I think that the roasters could rely more on their tasting notes, make those a lot more obvious, maybe diminish the importance of the process. And that's just for some coffee nerds. So, yes, some of us really value that information and we find that really interesting and you may want to try that process. But overall, I think that we may be doing, you know, most general consumers and people that we want to introduce, especially a disservice by making it so complicated. Right. Like clarity is what gets us results, lack of clarity, this confusion. I don't know, maybe somebody would be interested in trying a coffee, but it sounds really complicated, and then they just go back to whatever they've bought before. And we I used to have this analogy a lot in my winemaking days, where there's so many wines that you can buy. So many, because wine has been incredibly differentiated in terms of what variety you're going to buy, what vintage? Is it a Sauvignon Blanc from 2017 from New Zealand? Or is it a Sauvignon Blanc from 2019 from the Napa Valley? Or all of the different characteristics that lead us to appreciate the beverage. Um, But in school, they warned us about, you know, a new wine consumer goes to the wine aisle and they just see a wall of 500 bottles and they don't necessarily know where to start. And so they confusedly kind of wander the aisle for like five minutes and then they turn around and then just get a beer and go home. And we're not doing, we're not helping ourselves by making this thing so complicated that we are discouraging people who who want to try our product and then they just don't know where to start and then go back to what's familiar. I do see coffee kind of following this model of wine, which actually doesn't work well in wine. <laughs> like they've told us, don't do this. And yet coffee's like, no, we want to go to that place when, again, from wine, we're saying it doesn't work. It doesn't help people drink your product. So at the end of the day, I would like to see more emphasis placed on tasting notes, less emphasis on how those notes got there necessarily, uh, meaning a long, complicated process on, you know, just on a regular coffee bag. And... If as And I've heard some consumers say, well, I can't really trust the tasting notes or I don't really taste what they taste. I think that that's a problem. I think that you can definitely find roasters that are very spot on with their tasting notes. It's not bullshit. It is a genuine description of what you're going to get. And, you know, try try and find those. <laughs> Do a little bit of experimentation. But I've definitely found roasters where they put something on the bag and it's in the cup. All right. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks for everybody who sent in their questions. It was really fun to kind of challenge myself in this new format. Let me know what you think. Do you like more of these casual episodes where I just ramble? I don't like rambling. I'm not going to turn this into a rambling podcast episode, I promise, um, or a podcast show. Uh, there's a lot of preparation that generally goes into these episodes because I value your time, but it can be s- sometimes refreshing to see kind of what comes up and what random stories my brain decides to come up with so anyway thanks again for listening thanks again for hanging out with me if you want to keep in touch with updates on this podcast uh, or get in touch with me I have a newsletter that's found on my website that's l-u-x-i-a.coffee it's lucia.coffee if you enjoyed this episode share it with a friend who loves coffee or wine I will catch you guys next time. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.